This is Joyride. In this podcast series, we'll be exploring some of the most iconic cars in history. I, Jared Brandon Flandy, will be taking the driver's seat as your host. Please sit back and enjoy the ride. Welcome to the first episode of this podcast. Now, as you can imagine, we're going to be talking about cars quite a bit. But we're not necessarily going to be talking about how to change your spark plugs, how to change your tire, the difference between an alternator or a carburetor. Don't get me wrong, these are all very important things. But really the goal behind this series is to talk about cars that have made a cultural impact. Vehicles that are truly iconic. So with each episode, I'm going to be making an opening statement, very much like I am now. And then I'm going to tell you a story about a particular car that meets all the standards I've just mentioned. I'll end with some closing remarks, and then we'll be done. Now, a little bit about me. I am just a humble gearhead. It probably started when I was about 11 or 12 years old about the time my brother had passed his driving test. And we both wanted to become a part of this automotive world. And how we did that is we started downloading car clips off the internet. Now mind you, this is in the world of dial-up. So we would sit there all night waiting for these two or three minute clips to download, which sounds totally silly by today's standards. But in our minds, it was well worth it. A lot of this stuff was early Top Gear, you know, before Clarkson, Hammond, and May got together, long before the Grand Tour, a bit of fifth gear. We watched racing, rally, Formula One, you name it. My brother even became a rally driver and has won quite a bit of races so far. With time, our taste in cars has differed a bit. But nonetheless, as we were growing up, most of the people that we hung out with and grew up with were into cars. In the same way that a lot of people are into sports and grew up going tailgating, we grew up with engines revving and gears changing. It was just the way life was. But time has passed and my career has kind of taken center stage and cars have had to kind of take a back seat, no pun intended. But nonetheless, it's still something I'm very involved with, I'm very passionate about, and that's one of the reasons why I've decided to do this podcast. So, with that said, we have the groundwork laid out. We know what we're going to do. So, I think I'm going to change gears and tell you a story now. So, let's get started. The car we'll be exploring today is a child of the 1960s. The world was experiencing major changes at the time. The fashions were brighter, the attitudes were different, and the music was louder. Pretty soon, a new car would enter the world that featured all the same attributes of the 60s. The Jaguar E-Type was introduced in 1961 at the Geneva International Motor Show in Switzerland. The bosses at Jaguar anticipated the car would gather a lot of interest at the show, so they gave one of their drivers, Norman Dewis, the task of driving the car overnight to make it to the show on time. He had to travel over 600 miles from the factory in England to Switzerland in order to make the deadline. 
He accomplished the feat by making the entire trip in 11 hours. When the show opened the next day, with the shining E-type proudly on display, no one had seen anything like it before. A sleek convertible that even Enzo Ferrari himself said was the most beautiful car in the world. Sir William Lyons, the founder of Jaguar, would usually style his own cars, but the graceful lines of the E-Type were primarily crafted by former aircraft engineer and later industrial designer Malcolm Sayer. It was not only a looker, though. The car shared some relation with two Jaguar race cars. The 24-hour of Le Mans is one of the most famous and prestigious races of all time. The first race car was the 1951 C-Type, C standing for competition. The car won Le Mans twice. The next car was the 1954 D-Type, which won the endurance race three times. In 1956, Jaguar exited motorsports with the possibility of a successor race car being very unlikely now. As a result, they began work on a road version of the D-Type. The E-Type, as it would become known, had a monocoque body with a slim profile. In 1957, a test prototype began being experimented with and would feature the same 2.7-liter, 120-horsepower engine that was also in the Jaguar Mark I sedan, the car that would eventually become the Mark II of Inspector Morse fame. Despite rave reviews from the press, Jaguar was still focusing on other cars, such as the Mark X, so the design team had to perfect the car that would become the E-Type. It could achieve speeds of over 150 miles per hour, making it the fastest car in the world at the time. It was also safe. It even had disc brakes and an independent suspension design that came from the Mark 10, which would be used all the way up till the 1990s. Surprisingly, it didn't burn a hole in your wallet either. The introductory price was a mere 2,195 pounds, or approximately 50,000 US dollars in today's money. If this still seems high to you, take into consideration a current Bugatti Chiron can cost well over $4 million. Because of everything it had to offer, so many orders came in that the little company could not make them fast enough. Potential customers even begged to be put further up the list so they could get a car sooner. Problems would soon arise, however. In a very Jaguar owner fashion, the company was not exactly honest about the car's capabilities. The vehicles they gave the press could go faster, while the production vehicles couldn't even reach 140 miles per hour. Also, the brakes weren't great, the transmission performed sketchy at times, and many customers complained of the cramped size of the cabin. Most of these problems and others would be fixed with later model years, but in the end, no one really cared about the car's issues. The E-Type became an icon of 60s cool, even to the point some journalists have described it as a racing car in a miniskirt. The car was so fast it was a popular choice in a world where most of the highways still did not have speed limits. As production continued, V12 engines also began to be offered. Even the E-Type had to slow down eventually, though. Some loyal Jaguar customers started buying the company's sedan models, which were quick but could also comfortably hold a family of four. Other buyers also started complaining about reliability problems that were common for British cars of the time. Competing supercars being produced by Porsche and Ferrari began luring customers from Jaguar as well. Alas, all good things eventually have to come to an end, and the last E-Type rolled off the assembly line in 1975. The end of a 14-year era. It was replaced with the V12-powered XJS the same year. This car would be produced for another 21 years before being replaced by the XK8 in 1996, and the XK8 would be replaced 10 years later by the XK. However, even though the E-Type is no longer made, 
its legend still lives on. The E-Type has made numerous film appearances and has inspired designers for decades. Even later Ford models such as the Taurus sport an E-Type inspired front grille. In 2013, the E-Type would finally have a spiritual successor with the production of the Jaguar F-Type. This proves that the Jaguar E-Type truly is an icon since it still is setting the standard of what a great sports car should be, even today. Well, I hope you enjoyed that story of the E-Type. As you heard, it really has set standards and truly is an iconic car, and it's held in big respect amongst a lot of gearheads, whether you're a Jaguar fan or not. It's just one of those kinds of cars that everyone just seems to like. Now, I have to be honest, I'm not really biased when it comes to vehicles. I mean, you got lots of people that are just, you know, Toyota guys or Honda guys, or if you even get all the way up into the big leagues, there's people that are just into Porsche or just into Ferrari. I've never really been that way. I've always had an appreciation for lots of different brands and lots of different models. But if I had to have a list of preferences, Jaguar would definitely be on that list. And part of that is because it's very personal to me. My first car actually was a Jaguar. It was a 2000 S-Type that I bought when I was about 20 or 21. I didn't pay a lot for it. I got a good deal on it. The guy basically was just trying to sell it and get rid of it. So I ended up on the um, the winning end there. So the day I bought it, I took it home the same day. It had all the original paperwork and that sort of stuff with it. And I set that on the kitchen counter, and I was just sitting in the living room. And my mom is picks it up and just going through it, I think out of curiosity. And she goes, did you see this? I went, what? She goes, no, just take a look. So she hands me the original bill of sale, and the car was initially bought at the Jaguar dealership in San Rafael, California. And on the purchase order was all the usual stuff, the VIN number and whatnot, but there was also the name of the company that bought it, and it said Lucasfilm Limited. So I don't know, but a good friend of mine pointed out, he goes, yeah, they wouldn't have given some intern to drive that around. So only the big guys up top probably got that car. So I don't know. Maybe the big man himself. Maybe George Lucas drove it. So with that said, I think I'm going to wrap things up. We all know uh, roughly how this is going to go from now on. So next time, next episode, we'll be discussing a completely different car and a new story. So I hope you will be there to listen. I hope you'll enjoy it. So take care. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.